Good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Paul Graham, and I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. Welcome you here today, and those of you online. Uh, one of the things that's going on in this season of life here at Lakeside is uh, we are doing life groups, and we're doing life groups around a specific book. Now, if you're not part of a life group and you want to join one, you've heard that you can. Uh, if you want to just get the book and read along, you can do that. And if you don't do anything with life groups or anything with the book, you can still participate here because, you know, we're still preaching God's word and all of that stuff is still going on. So uh, don't worry about that. Uh, but here's the book just for sake of the people at home as well. We'll try and zoom in on that. And, uh, but the author is Jared Wilson, and he's a professor at Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And Jared has written books like the Gospel-Driven Church, The Gospel Wakefulness, The Gospel According to Satan, Eight Lies About God, and Things That Sound Like the Truth. And he's written a lot of other books that don't have the word gospel in it. But I like his gospel focus, and this is one of them, The Imperfect Disciple, and that's the one we're going to be going through. And I, I bring up Jared, and I bring up the book to introduce this message on discipleship, because I want to warn you now as you get into it, and we have most of the books. The leaders have their books. And we have books today for people who have their life group early in the week. We've ordered them from Masters. We've ordered them from Amazon. They may be sitting at the post office. So many books that we have to get in. We were having trouble finding them all. But we have some here today for those who meet early in the week. But I just want to warn you uh, about Jared. He has a quirky writing style in this book. It's very conversational. It's a little goofy. Some people are going to love his writing style. Some of you will not appreciate it as much and might be a little distracting. But his style has its purpose. It makes the book a very easy read. Each chapter that we're doing in a week is only 10 to 14 pages. It takes like 20 minutes to do your reading. And he's super relatable. And hopefully you'll see some pictures of yourself in his personal experiences that he shares in the book. And, uh, but I will say, for those of you that are maybe a little distracted by his style... Uh, like I was, because I read really boring books, and his is exciting. Um, his style settles down a little bit after you get past the first couple of chapters. Like, he comes out of the gate with kind of all of his personal stories and his personality and stuff, but it's, it, it does recede a bit as the book progresses, so bear with it. For those who don't love his style, hang in there. And uh, for those who do love his style, he does not abandon it completely. It is a fun read. Um, as I said now, just to introduce this, we're going to do roughly a chapter a week, um, and uh, we're going to try and finish it up before Christmas. Uh, I'll let you know when we're doing a double chapter to speed it up a little bit. So do get at least one book per couple. Do the reading before you get to the group. There is also a little study guide. Do the personal reflection stuff before you get to the group. It's only going to take you about half an hour a week. And you will get so much more out of your group, and you will uh, thrill your leaders and your hosts to such a degree if you come with your reading and your homework done. Leaders, amen, right? As opposed to a whole bunch of people coming up saying, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to read it. What are we talking about? I didn't do any homework, but I got lots of opinions about it. Um, <laughs> just so you know, that is how you sound in group, okay, to the leaders. <laughs> exactly like that. So do your work. Honor everybody's time who's there. You'll get a lot out of this. And as I said, if you still don't have a group, we can probably get you into one. We've got lots of hosts and leaders standing by. Just call or text 705-854-1056. But not right now, because I'm preaching. Um, 
So what are we doing then? By way of introduction now, I'll get on to what I'm talking about. What do we want to do with this book? And what do we want to do with this season of life at Lakeside? What are we trying to accomplish with this nine or ten weeks? Well, basically, it's a refocus on discipleship. Refocusing broadly in terms of all of us as a whole church to lean into discipleship because it really is our primary and greatest commission. Jesus delivers his final command to his disciples in Matthew 28, and I'm sure you've all heard it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, as a church, we need to disciple. And disciples are meant to be disciple makers. And churches are meant... Therefore, to be sort of disciple gardens, disciple fields, disciple forests. And all of that has implications for us corporately as a whole church and implications for each one of you and us individually. Some of the implications of that discipleship command are that God is the gardener. The book of Jeremiah, quite often in chapters 1, 18, 31, 45, uses this imagery of God uprooting and planting, of breaking down and also building up. That is what being a disciple means. Jesus has the authority and the right to uproot things in your life and replant new things in your hearts, to prune the parts of us that need pruning. John 15 says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. That's the implication that we have here personally of discipleship. God gets to uproot things, he gets to tear things down in our life, and he gets to plant new things and build things up and prune things. If we are not submitting to God's authority to uproot and replant and to the Spirit of Christ's authority to prune, then we are not being disciples. Another implication of that directive of disciple-making is that we engage in this in community. We do this together in the church. Not only does God have permission, but God has actually brought us into this mission with him. He's joined us to himself in this activity of his, which means the brothers and sisters that are sitting around you right now or watching online from home are not just growing in this garden of discipleship beside you. They are also gardeners along with God. They get their hands dirty in the gardening of your life. In love, by the Spirit, we are called to uproot and to plant alongside God, even as Jeremiah was called to do this work in the nation of Israel. The Bible describes all this gardening that we're doing in various ways. We're called to guard one another, James 5, exhort one another, Hebrews 3, admonish one another, Colossians 3, encourage one another, Hebrews 10. All of those one another's that we looked at just three weeks ago, those are all the ways that we have permission, with gentleness and love, to garden in each other's life. We have permission to exhort and to admonish and to encourage and to teach. So that's what we're doing in this season with a focus on discipleship. That's what we're doing as a church and in each of our own hearts. We're, we're refocusing on our call to both be and to make true disciples. And I'll just say as an aside, we, we as Christians need a better disciple-making process. This just occurred to me as I was rereading my introduction. We need a better discipleship-making focus as Christians, not in the sense of evangelism programs, not in the sense of training systems, 
We need a better heart-level discipleship focus in this sense, that at some level, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are thinking in every interaction that we have with someone in the church is an opportunity to leave them a better disciple than when we found them. You understand what I'm saying? Every conversation we have, every time we do ministry together, every group we're in, every time I'm admonishing, teaching, receiving admonishment, receiving teaching, whatever it is, every time Christians get together, we need to have a discipleship heart that says this encounter is a chance to leave that brother or sister as a better disciple than when I found them. How often do we think that? How often do I think that? But that's what it is to be a disciple. To say, when I'm on the phone with you, when I'm talking to you, when we're working side by side, when we're encountering or engaging in this, I want to leave you a better disciple than when I found you. Man, if we had that discipleship heart in all of us, what an encouraging place to minister. So what is a disciple? Well, in the first chapter, Mr. Wilson is going to spend some time unpacking the idea of what disciples are supposed to do and also what it means to be a disciple. And I'm not going to do your homework for you, but as a warm-up to that chapter, let's consider what the Bible says about disciples. What do disciples do, and what do we be? So what is a disciple? I have about four core ideas that I want to leave you with, and the Bible says disciples are lots of things, but let me focus on these four. First of all, a disciple hopes in God. And before I start, I'm going to remember to pray, because I need to do that. Father God, we are now unpacking your word, and so we need your Holy Spirit to lift the veil off our eyes, to calm our hearts, to move us from darkness into light, so that we can see clearly what your Holy Spirit would teach us. Just pray that you would do that miraculous work this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So first of all, a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple hopes in God. First and foremost, a disciple is someone who has put all of their hope only in the promise of God and this specific promise, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is for us and sufficient to accomplish all that is required to deliver us from death and into new life. In other words, a disciple is a person who knows that the gospel is real and that the gospel has changed their lives by setting our hope on Jesus Christ. Peter writes it this way, 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you. So that's the first thing that a disciple is, right off the bat. A disciple is someone who has their hope in God, hope in Jesus Christ, hope in the promise that God has made that Jesus is everything that they need and is sufficient for all of life and death and resurrection. And that means that a disciple has transferred and is always in a process of transferring their hope from this world into Christ. We transfer hope in ourselves before Christ into hoping in Christ. When we start to hope in the security of money and our bank account, we catch ourselves and we say, wait, I don't hope in my money. I don't hope in that security. I hope in Christ. Right? We start to hope in our marriage for our happiness and, with, and joy. 
and, and, when we, and we catch ourselves when we start getting disappointed in our marriages and we catch ourselves and say, wait, my marriage is not ultimately for my happiness and joy. Jesus is for my happiness and joy. I hope in Jesus for my joy. When we put all of our hope in our children turning out the way that we want our children to turn up, out, we, we catch ourselves as disciples and we put our hope back in Jesus. And when we start putting all of our hope in the statistical results of medication or, or treatment, we shift our hope from statistics to Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't take treatment or don't take medicine. It doesn't mean we don't find joy in our marriage. It doesn't mean we don't desire success for our children. It doesn't mean we don't act wisely with our finances. Medicine, money, marriage, children, those are all good things, but they are not the ultimate hope of a disciple. And when a disciple catches themselves hoping in marriage or money or medicine, we stop and we transfer our hope back to Jesus where it belongs. Because disciples hope in God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cling to the only hope of Jesus for our salvation, and we reject the false hopes of the world. Secondly, a disciple discovers and develops new affections. Christ becomes our treasure. So a true disciple, in putting their hope in God, has awoken in them a new affection for Jesus, and discipleship then involves cultivating and nourishing that new affection in our lives. Just as our hope shifts from the created to the creator, so our affections shift from the creation to Christ. Our greatest joy and contentment is found in Jesus Christ, not in any earthly thing, so that in a very practical way, if there's anything earthly or anything created that is getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus, we sacrifice that earthly thing and cling to Jesus because he is our greater affection. Just as I have affection for my wife, Wendy, if there is anything that is getting between me and my wife, I set that thing aside and cling to the affection that I have for my wife. So as disciples, we have a new affection which says Jesus gives us greater joy and we treasure Jesus above everything else. And I remind you again of of my... And hopefully your number one discipleship verse, it's got to be top three at least. Matthew 13, 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Right? That's, that's what the relationship with Jesus is. It's like a treasure you found and you cover that thing up and then you go and you sell all you have to go get that. Because there is nothing you treasure, nothing you cherish, nothing you love more than the kingdom of heaven and King Jesus. And Jesus may not ask us to do that. Some people he does, others he does not. But what will happen for every disciple is that we will encounter things in our life, things in our heart that we will need to give up in order to be present with Jesus. Because the things of this world will work desperately to take your time and your attention and your affection and keep it planted here in this world instead of seeking the treasure of Jesus. But as disciples, we have a new affection for Jesus. We have a new cherishing and treasuring and love of Jesus. And that's where our affection lies. And we will put aside any affection in this world that interferes with our affection for him. We cultivate and nourish that affection. Thirdly, we have a new hope. We have a new affection. We have a new identity. This is Christ formed in us. Disciples are adopted into a new family and given a new identity in Christ. You remember in Peter it said that 
God has adopted us into a new family. Paul says it again in Galatians 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that... Why? Why did, why did Jesus do all of this? So that we might receive adoption as sons. We get a new identity. Jesus, God planned all this. Jesus did all this so that we would get a new identity. Disciples in Christ have a new identity in Jesus Christ. Later on, Paul emphasizes in 419, he says, My little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Jesus did all of this to make us disciples, and disciples are people who have a new identity. Disciples are people, Paul says, that Christ is being formed in. And all of this means that as disciples of Jesus, this new identity, we are always in the process of taking up that new identity. Our identity is no longer in our family. Our identity is no longer in our ethnicity or our gender or our sexuality or our politics or our career or our success or our witty personality or our Facebook profile or our bank account or our talents or our accomplishments. Our identity is not found in any of those things. Our identity is no longer in our past. Our identity is not what harm has been done to us. It's not in how we have been wounded. Our identity is not even in how we have wounded or harmed others. We are no longer either victims or villains anymore. Our identity as disciples of Jesus Christ is solely in the person of Jesus Christ adopted into his family as sons and daughters and in whom the very nature of Christ is being formed in us. And so as disciples, we are always in a constant state in this life of setting down old identities and false identities and deceitful identities and identifying with Christ. We are not held captive to any identity the world or our culture or our family tries to bind us with. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, with whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's a disciple. New hope, new affections, new identity. Fourthly, disciples are those who have a new posture towards the world. Christ is evident in us. This is what we do. There's hundreds of things that disciples do, but I want to sum up all the things that discipleship means in terms of our outward action as a new posture That is a new stance, a new attitude, a new approach to the world and to every situation in life. As a disciple, in every circumstance we encounter, every decision we need to make, every relationship we are in, there is always a biblical response. There is always a spiritual response as a disciple. A discipleship response that's different from the world and the flesh. So our posture as disciples towards the world and to everybody just has this fundamental shift. Paul gets this across in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is telling young Timothy here what the end purpose of his discipleship instruction is. As he is teaching... As he is sharing the word of God, as Paul himself is making disciples, he is not interested in mere information transfer. Disciples don't just have head knowledge. True disciples manifest, Paul says. It means people will see it. 
They embody new behaviors from their new inner being. Paul wants himself and Timothy and me and you to speak truth into our hearts so that we manifest love from a good conscience and sincere faith. In other words, Paul is saying that all of this discipleship that I'm doing should result, Timothy, in a new posture towards the world, a posture of love. This means that everything we handle in the world, we take a different approach to. That means that disciples handle money differently than the world handles money. It means disciples approach marriage different than the world approaches marriage. It means we treat every kind of person differently than the world might treat people. It means we react to politics differently than the world might. Everything, big and small, has a spiritual, biblical response. Small to big. Disciples have a different posture to the world. That means that we react to being cut off in traffic differently than the world does. When we say someone is number one, we really mean they're number one. That's the finger we use. We react differently than the world expects when friends of ours are careless with our feelings or our emotions. That's a little harder than just being cut off in traffic. It means, as disciples... We act differently when we're asked for a divorce. That's really big. That's what a different posture to the world means. It means as disciples, we don't act the way the world expects. We act biblically in every circumstance, small or huge. Jesus was speaking towards the change in our posture when he said things like, love your enemies, be good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you. That's a different posture, isn't it? And those people that he's talking about, that includes your family, it includes your friends, it includes your spouse. The posture of a disciple in every circumstance of life becomes different than it was before Christ. And disciples practice that new posture of love and humility and courage and wisdom and patience and grace and truth and justice and compassion and so much more that is a good discipleship posture. That's what discipleship is about. That's what discipleship living is, or at least it's a good beginning to describing it. And as we embark on this season of pressing into discipleship, we should consider now a few barriers to discipleship, because a really good question is, as I talk about all these things that discipleship is, a really important question that each of us in our own heart has to ask ourselves as Christians is, why don't we do this all the time? Why aren't we great disciples? What stops us? Because there will be lots of things that try to stop us from this discipleship season that we're in. So let's look at what discourages discipleship from happening. And just a few ideas spring from a couple of texts in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples, and a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then another man came up to Jesus, and he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then another said, I will follow you, Lord. Uh, But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, Nobody who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, there's lots of things that interrupt real discipleship. All three of these guys said, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus, and all three of them had a reason why they didn't. And there's a few ideas that flow out of 
some of the ideas here. Real, real discipleship doesn't happen. Why doesn't real discipleship ha- doesn't? Why doesn't real discipleship happen? Sometimes real discipleship doesn't happen in our lives as Christians because we fail to realize that Christianity is more than mere consent to a better way of living. Sometimes we come to the church and we come to Christ and we see it from the outside and we say Christians are nice and church is friendly and community is helpful and while I raise my family and these people were really kind to me, I want to be a part of that. I just, I just like the Christian life for me and my family and so I'll join that club. And you join the Christian club and you get all the surface benefits of it and, and you think that Christianity is just a consent to these guys have figured out a really good way to live and I'm going to live that way. And real discipleship isn't happening in your life because we don't realize that true Christianity is more than just consent to a wise way of living. And if that's all Christianity is to you, then discipleship will be hard and you will abandon it as soon as it stops being comfortable. You won't follow Jesus if you don't have a den or you only have a rock to lay your head on for a season in life, if you're in hard places. Real discipleship will never happen if you think Christianity is just a smarter way to live and that it's not dying to ourselves every day the way Jesus posed it to these men. Real discipleship doesn't happen because we don't understand the future perfect tense of what the word follow means. We wrongly think that our Christianity is around a decision or a moment in time and not a lifetime of daily decisions. Maybe you went forward at a youth retreat, or maybe you said a prayer to your aunt when you were a child, and you think, there, I've done the Christianity thing. This following Jesus, it was just this moment in time. That was the important thing. And if you think discipleship is just a matter of a moment in time, then real discipleship will never happen. Christianity is about a lifetime of following. You can't follow if you stop. All three of these guys said they would follow, and they never even started. If you think Christianity gives you permission after a moment in time to return to your old self-serving life the way these men wanted to return to their life, then real discipleship will never happen. Luke 9.23 said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Thirdly, real discipleship doesn't happen because of an overly realized individualism. Or even as I talked or listened to Beth speaking to us this morning, I can even more broadly apply this to just the downward flow of the cultural stream, and it's hard to swim upstream. But in that downward flow of the cultural stream that we have to swim against is an overly realized individualism. This interferes with loving Jesus more than we love ourselves. It interferes with laying down our old cherished identity that we've built for ourselves and being conformed to a new identity in Christ. It interferes with taking a new posture towards the world because we have to admit that our old postures were misguided. Our stubborn pride and individualism, which our culture has indoctrinated us with, will be a barrier to our discipleship if we do not submit it to the Lordship of Christ. And directly related to our overly realized individualism, but expressed in the opposite sense, is our false humility, believing somehow that we're a second-class kind of disciple. You will get discouraged in your discipleship, and you will not make progress in your discipleship if you look at other believers and think, I'm not a super-Christian like those guys. I will never be able to measure up to the music leaders, or the pastors, or the elders, or my life group leader, or that person who evangelizes to everybody that they meet. We can have this false idea that somehow we didn't receive the Holy Spirit, but we received the hesitant spirit. 
and that we are somehow second-class Christians, and therefore our discipleship stagnates, our growth and maturity stumbles. But that is not true. Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, every single one of you who has the gospel knowledge of Jesus Christ and has received the Holy Spirit, you have the same Spirit. The power that is at work in you is the same power that is at work in me, is at work in your life group leader, it is at work in John MacArthur, it is at work in John Piper, it is at work in Billy Graham and in Paul Graham and in Paul the Apostle. It is the same power that Paul says was at work in Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead in Ephesians 1. Paul is praying that his friends would know his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. This is a barrier to our discipleship. If you think that you don't have the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul has, if you don't think you have the same power working in you that raised Jesus from the dead, you will think, oh, I can never do it. But that is a lie from the enemy. You have the same power, the same Holy Spirit at work in every Christian. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do not sell yourself short. Your identity is not in whatever false humility you have, that you are somehow a second-class citizen who got a B-class spirit. There's no such thing. Finally, real discipleship doesn't happen and will be a barrier to happening because as people we are afraid and we only expose the surface. We will only let people garden in the top inch of the soil. We will never let anybody get down to the roots and get out those nasty ragweeds that go down three or four feet. Real discipleship will not happen in this season if you only let people on the surface. We as Christians are pretty good at having a veneer of accountability, a veneer of identity, a veneer of affection for Jesus, but our identity and our affection and our following never gets under the surface. We still really treasure the other things in our life more than Christ. We really still get our identity from our bank account or our career or our politics or whatever it is that we get our identity from. We hide our real motives and our real struggles and our real wounds from everyone, and we pretend that we are more whole than we really are, never welcoming true transformation by the Holy Spirit. Instead, we fearfully hold on tightly to the way we've always been because it's not great, but it's comfortable, and I know it. And change is scary. And the Holy Spirit is trying to do things in my life I don't understand, and so we keep everybody on the surface And real discipleship doesn't happen because we're afraid to let anybody go deeper, including God. So in this season of discipleship, we've heard four things that a disciple is. Just remember this, a disciple is someone who has their hope fully in God, fully in Jesus Christ. A disciple has new affections. We disdain things of the world because of our love for Jesus Christ, and we cultivate that love. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. Our identity is no longer who, where we came from or who we are or anything in this world. Our identity is only Jesus. And the fourth one, help me, I forgot my own sermon. Uh, fourth one <laughs> is a new posture. Oh, the important one. A new posture towards the world. 
And then we talked about all these reasons that can get in the way. And, and, and my overview of those reasons is simply this. We need to dig into this season of discipleship and be brutally honest with ourselves. What is stopping us from having discipleship be effective in our life? What is stopping us from moving forward in victory in the Christian life the way we want to? So your job, your homework then, in addition to reading the chapter, is to rehearse the marks of true discipleship and pursue them. Lean into what being a follower means, what discipleship is. New hope, new affection, new identity, new posture. We need to sow those seeds and cultivate those things in our garden of discipleship and build those things up in our lives and in the lives of each other. We also have to identify what our biggest barriers to becoming a disciple are and battle against those barriers and tear them down and uproot those things. Of all the things I've talked about today, I think the most important I could highlight and leave you with is a new affection. At the end of the day, disciple is not someone who behaves perfectly. Disciple is not someone who has perfect theology. A disciple is not someone who has conquered every sin in their life. A disciple is someone who loves Jesus. And the one thing I can tell you that will help you with all those other things in discipleship, it will help you with a new identity, it will help you with a new posture, it will help you with conquering sin, it will help you with new behaviors, it will help you with hope, it will help you with all those things. The one thing you do as a disciple is you just love Jesus more. You cultivate an affection for Christ, and all those other things will come along. John Piper speaking to this, writes, Minimizing the importance of transformed feelings makes Christian conversion less supernatural and less radical. It is humanly manageable to make decisions of the will of Christ. No supernatural power is required to pray prayers or to sign cards or to walk aisles or even to stop sleeping around. Those are all good things. They just don't prove that anything spiritual has happened in a Christian life. Christian conversion and living, on the other hand, is a supernatural, radical thing. The heart is changed, and the evidence of it is not just new knowledge, new behaviors, or new decisions, but new affection. Affection for the things of God. Affection primarily for the Son of God. And so for the next eight to ten weeks, let's lean in and embrace discipleship specifically the supernatural power of a new hope, a new affection, a new identity that results in a new posture towards the world. Discipleship is God's calling on the church. Discipleship is God's calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've called us to follow. You've called us to set down all the false gods of this world, the false identities of this world, the false hopes of this world, all the things in this fallen creation that will let us down. Everything in this life will eventually evaporate. Moths will eat. Rust will destroy. People will let us down. People will fail us. We will let ourselves down. We won't even measure up to our own standards. We'll put our hope and our love into something, and it will fail us. Father, we thank you that we can have a treasure in heaven that is secure, that our hope and our affection can be set on Jesus Christ, who will never fail, who has done everything necessary for us to set us free from the bondage of this world 
and to follow him and gives us the Holy Spirit, the power that we need to live this discipleship life. I pray for everyone here today, leaders, hosts, group members, people who are just looking in from the outside, and that's fine too, that they would press into what being a disciple really means in the next few weeks. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.